Well, hello there and welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode 31. Emerging into the world from our Zone Radio studios on Broadway and Bangor, Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here. So where we do our daily show, Downtown, Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time on WZON Radio, WKIT HD3. You can hear us online as well, streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com, or you can just download the handy-dandy WZON app. We are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Two very interesting conversations on this week's edition of the podcast. Actor Patrick Fabian and a historian, author, national security expert, Tom Nichols. Two different conversations, but they're really good guys to talk with. And we start with actor Patrick Fabian. Always good to see guys who've been in the business a long time and who've always done quality work get their chance to shine. And Patrick Fabian told us he's been doing this for 27 years and finally getting acclaim, the acclaim he deserves uh, as part of a dynamite cast on Better Call Saul. He's so good on that. And I like to see those working actors get their chance in the sun. Yeah, and when that when it does happen, it seems like they really appreciate the mm. chance to to launch into a role that's more than just, you know, a, a cameo or a guest shot. Mm. They really get into the, the meat of the characters a lot more than they have been able to in the past, maybe. Uh, Patrick, of course, plays Howard Hamlin on Better Call Saul. He's also got a brand new movie coming out this week entitled Driver X, where he plays an Uber driver. We had a really fun time talking with actor Patrick Fabian. We'll talk about Better Call Saul, but I want to first discuss uh, your brand new movie that comes out later this week. Driver X uh, looks terrific. You play a man who loses his business and becomes an Uber driver. And I understand uh, this this mirrors the, the real story of the writer and director of the film. Absolutely. Henry Burial, who's been a writer-director for about 15 years now, uh, like every artist, uh, you find it sometimes hard to turn a buck. And he found himself in middle-aged with a mortgage, a wife, and a kid. And, you know, he wasn't making Marvel superhero films. So he had to turn to driving Uber at night, like a lot of men have had to do, and women. And uh, the stories that poured out of that driving you know, Uber at Los Angeles at night were myriad, and then he decided to make that his next film. Well, it looks terrific. I absolutely love the trailer, and uh, just watching two minutes and 23 seconds of it, and I was annoyed with the millennials in your back seat. Well, it's very funny. You know, I, I like to think I'm still eternally youthful, but then I find myself in the supermarket in the milk section at 5 o'clock, because I've got two young girls at home, of course, and and they're playing Bon Jovi or Def Leppard, and I'm sort of enjoying that. And I look to my left and my right, it's a bunch of other guys who are over 40 and 50 enjoying it. And I realized I'd become a middle-aged guy, and my music's on classic rock now. And all of those things start to turn for you. And a lot of the people in the country, you know, uh, the gig economy, as they call it, has not really worked out. Promises that were sort of made or, or thought of early on in careers have had to stop, and people have had to reinvent themselves halfway through. And I think the film speaks honestly about uh, men and women, marriages, and, uh, and what it feels like to sort of be adrift in your middle age. And do you think, and it seems like this might be one of the themes of the film, that technology in its own way is not bringing us together, but maybe creating some sort of cultural divide? Well, I mean, absolutely. And uh, it's funny, you know, yeah, it's such an intimate experience getting in somebody else's car. And, of course, you know, ride share is your car, so it's even more intimate. Not like there's this, uh, this taxi or this limousine. It's your car. So when people sort of use it, abuse it, or throw up in it, 
it becomes a real violation. And what goes on in the back seat in Los Angeles in these days, you know, are young people doing what young people are doing, which is being selfies and all of that. And I have to say, I'm the father of two young girls. They're six and they're eight. And I find things falling out of my mouth that I swear <laughs> came out of my dad's mouth. And that cycle that I'm in now, it's, uh, I wanted to pretend that I was the person in the backseat when I was doing the movie. And the reality was I was suited exactly for the guy in the front. Now, did you do your own driving in the film? Well, you know, a cheap independent film, and I mean very independent film. We had a Kickstarter campaign, and we, uh, you know, we begged, borrowed, and stole from some other people. We're probably all in for only $100,000, but the film's beautiful. So DP shot it really nicely at, at, at night. And because of that, no, I'm not on a trailer. There's no green screens. I drive everything. My, my workload was basically driving as soon as the sun set, and then we stopped driving as soon as the sun rose. Um, which was interesting because if your first concern in the scene is to make sure you don't kill the actors, uh, it, lends itself to, uh, it lends itself to some spontaneity. Yeah, an additional sense of urgency there, absolutely. And uh, a very atmospheric feel to the trailer of this film. Uh, almost, almost a sense of claustrophobia like you're in that car with you. Well, it does, you know, and the director, Henry Barrio, also wanted to make sure it did not look like reality shows. It did not look like taxi cab confessions, because we all have that sort of experience of watching that, and that's sort of staged and for the camera. He wanted the feeling to be like you were in the car. You were either in the back seat looking at me, or you were beside me watching me watch them. So there is sort of a, uh, a, a claustrophobic is right, but I, I like intimate better, because intimate doesn't have a judgment whether it's a good or a bad thing, and sometimes claustrophobic makes it feel like you want to get out of there, and uh, I think people were like uh, getting in the car with us. We're talking with Patrick Fabian here on Downtown. Uh, you also, I noticed on social media, got yourself in, in a music video as part of this role. Well, Lily Hayden, who's been a long-time great go-to violinist in the music world, she's played with the Rolling Stones at U2, had worked with Henry before in his last film. And so she scored some original music for this because she really liked it. And then, in the, in, in, you know, because we all have phones and cameras now, we went out and shot a great video all through Venice, California at night. Um, so you can download that at Lily Hayden, H-A-Y-D-N, and uh, and it's my first music video, so I feel a bit like David Coverdale is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I noticed that resemblance right away. All that was yeah, missing yeah. was Tony Catane. Or the Tony Catane, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I'd have to talk. Well, let's first of all get the details out. The movie comes out later this weekend. It's also available uh, on demand as well starting on Friday. Yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, tonight, Tuesday, if you're saying, hey, I want to go see something, at the IFC Center on 6th Avenue, I'm going to be there. Some of the cast are going to be there. And Eric Bogosian is going to be doing the Q&A for us afterwards. It's a special sneak preview here in New York City. And then it opens in New York and Los Angeles on the 30th, this coming Friday. And like you said, if you just want to stay in your pajamas and grab some popcorn, I am not offended. You can download it on iTunes or Amazon. All information can be found at ifcfilms.com, or you can go to Driver X Movie on any platform. And one of my favorite actors uh, along with you is in this film, too. Uh, great to see Max Gale in this. Well, you know what? If you stick around long enough, you sort of get to know everybody. I did a children's uh, karate movie called Underdog Kids, and Max Gale was in it. And what a sweetheart. What a great guy. And, of course, I grew up knowing him as Roger Howitz from Barney Miller, and mm. we talked about that. We talked about the journey of being an actor and how you keep it going. And he was real. He was just a good friend, a good guy. So when we were making the film, we were calling people. We have over 50 speaking parts in the film, lots of cab, lots of, lots of riders to fill. 
And I just called up Max. I said, it's not a big part. Uh, it's going to be kind of small, but would you, would you be game for it? And he said, absolutely. And that reminded me of a couple of things. One, that actors are generous people by nature. And two, uh, it's, it's great to see somebody who has such a large career behind him willing to say, yeah, I'll do something small for you. And he's going to be at the premiere on Los Angeles on, on Friday as well. So I will pass along your hellos to him. That is terrific. All right, better call Saul. I've said it many times on this show. Uh, it is the best show, the best ensemble on television, great writing, of course, the work of Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, but man, you guys just nail it every single week. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Real proud to be a part of the show. Real lucky to be working with those people, and you know, it all stems from good writing. All of it comes from good writing. If you don't have a good script, man, you can work and huff and puff, and you might you might sell a lot of goods, but you're not going to have what you have there with Saul, and I think that's because the writer's room, headed by uh, Peter Gould, um, really gets it right. You know, I use those words as a map for my character, and Jennifer Bryan pours me into those beautiful suits that probably get paid more than <laughs> Howard Hamlin himself, FYI. Um, you know, and then my work is like 90% done. Then they put those cameras on me and shoot those beautiful pictures. So, you know, I've been around for a while, about 27 years as a working stiff, and I've had a really fun career. Uh, it's a real treat to at this stage of my career and this stage of my life to be working with these people. And, uh, it's a real peak, and it's a real fun ride, and we're not done yet. That's you know, Season 4 just ended. We're going to go back and do Season 5. There may even be more after that. I don't know. They don't, uh, they don't tell me everything, or anything, rather. So uh, I'm excited to go back to work in Albuquerque this spring and, and have uh, all Season 5 come to you next summer sometime. Well, one of the many things that makes it such a terrific series is uh, it always defies expectations. When we meet Howard Hamlin, we, we think we know him, but there are no one-dimensional characters in this world, and there are no characters who are either black or white. It's always uh, shades of gray. And this past season especially, man, things went south for Howard. It's up to you now to save HHM. Can you do it? I know. How about that? I tell, you, I, I tell you what, when I showed up for the first day of season four and we were standing outside of Chuck's burned down house, uh, both as a character and an actor, I was like, oh, no, my life preserver is not here. Because when you're in a scene with the mighty Michael McKean, you know the scene's going to be good because Michael McKean's in it. So I felt a little abandoned and I felt a little like, oh, boy, what am I going to do? And then also story-wise, how much did HHM rely on Charles McGill? And I, I think we found by the end of season four, things are back on track, at least. At least Howard seems to be more back into his uh, his finery, you know. He was so disheveled there at the bathroom at one point, his poor tie bar was missing. I just thought that's about as low as a man can get of his stature, right? <laughs> Let me ask you, how do you view episode one of, of season four? Uh, do you think, from your perspective, was Howard there to really uh, ease Jimmy's pain and take the rap? No, it's so funny you say that because a lot of people came at it from the other angle. They said, "Oh, Howard's just—he's trying to like uh, offload his guilt or or whatever." And I really took it very dead seriously as that he had thought a lot about this and he had to unburden himself. But he was un not unburdening himself so he could like you know clear his conscience. I mean, once again, I think you can make an argument that Pat uh, that uh, that Howard Hamlin has been. Uh, uh, doing nothing but good for Jimmy. From the very beginning, he's been looking out for him, taking the heat that Chuck was giving him, giving him a job up at, uh, at Coakley and Schweigert, and now coming to say, oh, your brother killed himself, but I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to give you a, a pass. It wasn't you. It wasn't the insurance thing. It was me. And the fact that the audience, and this is where the writing comes in to be brilliant in my mind, it's only the audience and Jimmy 
who know what we're talking about mm. when I mention the insurance. So that means when he says that line of, that's your cross to bear, it's only between Jimmy and the audience. Even Kim is on the outside of that. And I think that's great for the, for the fans, right? Everyone's like, oh, wow, that's cold. Because then, I mean, I, for my money, you know, Saul, Saul's speaking right then, without a doubt. Yeah. And I always think some of the best acting does uh, not when you're not when you're saying your lines, but when you're reacting. And whether it's you or, or Bob Odenkirk or Ray Seahorn, oh man, you can just read a lifetime of experience into the reactions and at, at that moment in that scene, and also in the showdown with Kim. Oh, uh, unbelievable! You know, there was an article just recently where Bob addressed that. Uh, he was talking about what a crime it is that Ray Seahorn hasn't been nominated for anything, let alone one. And I agree. And part of it, I think, is because, you know, we don't have histrionics in the show. You know, the scenes you're talking about are are are, are deep and, and packed with emotion. But it's not a talkie show when it comes to that sort of thing. And the scene where Ray lays in on me finally, that's four years in the making, right? That's three, three and a half years of people watching and rooting for Ray and feeling pent up like she is to finally, you know, unload on me. Whether it's fair or not, that's a different discussion, but it certainly is satisfying, and it left me, Howard, with nothing to say. I was flummoxed. I was uh, beaten down from that. And I think that those moments uh, are earned by the show, and they're also some of the most fun to play. We're talking with Patrick Fabian here on Downtown. Well, of course, we're all wondering where this goes. We know ultimately uh, what happens as you enter into the Breaking Bad universe, but there are a lot of unanswered questions. Do you, as cast members, learn much ahead of time other than the scenes you're going to shoot? No, you know, we get scripts a few days beforehand, really. Uh, so we don't know what's coming down the pike, and they don't, uh, they don't offer it up. And I know, <laughs> I, know, uh, I know well enough not to ask, frankly, because <laughs> my opinion is not necessary in the writer's room, you know. Um, I think because Kim and I don't show up physically in Breaking Bad, uh, of course, there's lots of speculation as where where do we end up? Um, I don't know, and I think it's just good business and good for my so I can sleep at night to not care and to just sort of be glad I'm around why I'm around. Um, <laughs> I mean, nothing. I, here's my two options. My two options are that since we know that Jimmy is now Jean in Omaha, the Cinnabon, maybe I'm managing a Forever 21 in the mall <laughs> next door, or or this is what I'm pitching to the Travel Network. I hope somebody's listening. Kim Wexler and Howard Hamlin um, sail around the Caribbean, and they do pro bono work to the poor villagers. So, uh, you know, it's a workout show, it's a, it's a sunscreen show, and it's a, it's a beautiful travel show as well with a humanitarian guest. I, I don't know if we'll call it Kim and Howard Go Bananas, something like that. I'm, I'm still spitballing it. I, well, if they don't pick up that option, I, they're, they're missing out. Now, I, I understand, Patrick, a, a little bird tells me that you do a pretty good impression of uh, Jonathan Banks. Well, talk about somebody who knows how to just let the camera come to them and <laughs> watch what they're thinking. So I, I get to meet Jonathan Banks. I, the first day of, of Better Call Saul, I meet him. I just binged Breaking Bad, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, they killed Mike. He goes, I know, worst day of my life. And so then we can become friends, and he's really nice. And, okay, I hope he's not listening, actually, because... He's really nice. He's a softie. He's sentimental. He loves to laugh. So we get picked up for season three. I think I'm friends with Jonathan. So I called Jonathan, and I'm like, Jonathan, Jonathan, we got picked up for season three. As if we had just made the JV cheerleading team in high school. I'm so excited. Jonathan Banks says to me, Patrick, that's nice. But let me remind you, 
We know Bobby makes it to Breaking Bad. We know I make it to Breaking Bad. You, Seahorn, Mando, we don't know what happens to you. Save your money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that is, that is great. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't, I mean, he wasn't wrong. I was like, I was hoping we were going to high-five over the phone. But okay, I got it. I get it. Well, we're just living in this world. We've got Michael McKean coming on with us next week. So uh, if I could just spend every day talking about Better Call Saul, I, I would be happy with that. Oh, my gosh. The mighty Michael McKean. I tell you, man, what a great what, what a great gift that got dumped in my lap to go work with him. It was like going to acting school. So smart, so intelligent, so giving, so focused, and then just fun to work with. Uh, the whole package, again, uh, may I be like him when I grow up. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, uh, we enjoy your work so much. Uh, again, it's the best show on television. Better Call Saul. And can't wait to see Driver X that makes its premiere this week. It looks fabulous. Patrick, it's a real treat for us to talk with you. Thanks so much for visiting with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's Patrick Fabian here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back in a moment, to, well, we'll talk about the state of our union with historian and national security expert Tom Nichols. First, this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, a couple of friends got together their plan. Create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing. And with that, Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combined their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, their Stouts, Porters, IPAs, or any of the seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and look for Nice in cans throughout the state of Maine. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Back on Downtown, the podcast, Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell. Our next guest on the program is a professor at the Naval War College, an author, an expert on Russia, nukes, an ex-GOP guy leaving the Republican Party earlier this year. His latest book is The Death of Expertise, the Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Oh, he's also a five-time Jeopardy champion and made some waves in the last week when he dared to suggest on national television that Led Zeppelin might be overrated and that Boston, at least their first album, might be better than anything Zeppelin did. Tom Nichols joins us here on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks for the intro. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? You know, you can leave the Republican Party. That's one thing. But dis Led Zeppelin and the world goes crazy. I, I'm thinking that one, that's going to be on my tombstone. That'll be the only thing I've remembered for <laughs> I didn't like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> well, I uh, I don't completely disagree with you on that, but I I think uh, you you might have ruined Thanksgiving for Joe Scarborough. <laughs> well, when I uh, when I said that I would rather listen to the first Boston album than any Led Zeppelin album, that's uh, that's when all hell broke loose. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, um, that you got to own it if that's how you feel. Yeah, so. Absolutely. 
So uh, you, you made a lot of waves uh, earlier when you announced your departure from the Republican Party. You've been a never-Trumper for quite some time. But for you, what was the point of no return? What made you realize you could no longer be a part of the Republican Party? Well, first, I should say that I uh, don't represent the War College or the U.S. government, obviously. Um, these are my personal views. And my, my own view on it, it it's strange. I mean, um, there were more certainly more uh, well-known Republicans than me who had left, um, including George Will and Max Boot and a few others, uh, over major things. I mean, over the election of the president himself, the primaries, uh, some of the president's early behavior. Um, for me, it was a small thing, and, and it was a kind of a last, a final straw thing. I almost decided it was over after the Helsinki summit, which I, I thought was just an appalling moment. Um, one of the worst moments in any American presidency I'd ever seen. Um, and I, I had expected that other Republicans would feel the same way, and they either they didn't or they didn't feel comfortable or, or courageous enough to express it. Um, but what really did it was Susan Collins' speech about um, Judge Kavanaugh. And uh, I did not join the early pack on Judge Kavanaugh, that he was you know disqualified because of the charges against him, um, I to this day I, I don't know what happened between him and any of his accusers, but I thought that his eruption in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was partisan, bitter, um, you know, really beyond the temperament of a federal judge and certainly the Supreme Court nominee, at that point I thought, well, he's really disqualified himself. And when Susan Collins, who I you know had always looked at as a moderate um, within the party, got up and after a lot of fanfare and making, you know, everybody wait until three o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> said, well, you know, you all need to get on board because he's a good judge. And this is how it goes. And sort of walked past all of that. I said, there really is no part of the Republican Party that is not going to do what Donald Trump and perhaps to a lesser extent what Mitch McConnell wants to do. And I just did at that point, I realized that there were simply none of my values of conservative uh, that were being defended by anybody in the Republican Party. And I said, well, that was that when Senator Flake and Senator Collins and others simply just, you know, waved in Judge Kavanaugh. I said that that was it for me. I was floored at the reaction of some people who drew comparisons to the late Margaret Chase Smith. I, I teach history to high school students. And uh, what Susan Collins did was no declaration of conscience. I, I was just surprised by it. I mean, I... Um, and I didn't. I certainly didn't expect um, the senator to, you know, uh, to take a stand on this or anything other than principle. I remember people said she betrayed women, or she betrayed, you know, her, the community of women who in the Me Too movement. I, I, I mean, in a, in a sense, I, as a man, I kind of stood aside from that and said I wasn't going to make that charge. But I thought again after after Judge Kavanaugh erupted in front of the Judiciary Committee, and I and I understand, you know, it was under a lot of stress. Um, particularly some of these charges that I, I think some of them weren't true for sure, the, you know, the Avenatti accusers and so on. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, going right to uh, what goes around comes around, and this is a plot by the Clintons. And I mean, really kind of, you know, you see a man's character under that kind of stress. And I just didn't, I, I was really shocked that, you know, her kind of opening introduction was, I want to talk about Justice Kavanaugh's views on severability of clauses in the Constitution. And I I, I was floored by that. So it, it really wasn't that. It was the accumulation of a lot of things over two and a half or three years. And that, that to me was just, 
that said to me that there is no uh, that the Republican Party isn't going to heal itself, that there is no moderate center left in the Republican Party, and that my interests are simply not going to be institutionally reflected in that party. The Trump agenda is clearly not a traditional conservative agenda. And so why are people staying on board? Is it simply hanging on to power? Is it all about immigration? What are the reasons why uh, so many are clinging to this guy who clearly disagrees with some fairly longstanding tenets of conservatism? Well, I think, you know, the Trump movement raises some ugly things that we don't like to talk about. And I think when I say that, most people will say race. And actually, I would say class, um, because race and class are intimately connected in American life. Um, I think that um, a lot of the president's supporters thrive on resentment more than anything else. And, and I think that especially explains a lot of his supporters among people who are not economically uh, badly off, that, but nonetheless feel that they are marginalized in the culture. I mean, it's really surprising to me how a party that up until two weeks ago controlled all of the branches, elected branches of government, who, you know, had a massive majority um, at all levels of government throughout the United States, still thought of themselves as this embattled, put-upon, abused minority, um, which is ridiculous. But it's it's a very it's a victim mentality that really nurtures a sense of resentment, and that I think leads you to forget about conservative ideas. That you know when you're when you're thinking of yourself as a victim and you just want to get even with everybody in the world, and Donald Trump is the vehicle for that, you don't really care about executive overreach or judicial philosophy or um, you know, Russian-American relations or tax rates. None of that stuff really matters to you as much as just sticking it to the other guy. And I think that's one reason that a lot of people, at least, you know, judging from polls, 35 to 40 percent of the public, still sticks with him. Because for him, for them, he's the vehicle for getting even with other people, which I think is really un-American, but it's, it's kind of how we live now. We're talking with Tom Nichols here on Downtown. Well, the midterms uh, continue to look better and better for the Democrats, uh, certainly in the House, maybe not as bad as uh, we initially thought in the Senate, and then doing very well in state houses and state legislatures around the country. Uh, Knowing that, but also knowing the recent history of the Democratic Party, will the Democrats screw this up if uh, they use their power simply to go after Trump? And is there an implosion coming for the Democratic Party that will be similar to what's happening within the Republican Party? That's a great question. And, you know, I'm worried about that because for years, and I worked in Republican politics, I worked for a Republican senator um, back in the 90s. Um, So, you know, as as a lifelong Republican, waiting for the Democrats to screw things up was pretty much you know, a core part of our strategy, <laughs> you know, that you could just count. You could count on two things, that the Democrats wouldn't turn out for elections, especially in the midterms, and then if they did, that they would screw things up. Well, they've, they've now made a liar out of me about turnout. I mean, turnout among Democrats was really impressive, and this was something I predicted. When I, when I argued against uh, nominating the president back in 2015, 2016, I said, you know, the Republican Party, this is tying an anvil around their, our own necks at the time, um, and it's finally happened. Um, but, you know, will they screw it up? Well, uh, that's, you know, that's a, that's a more difficult call. I'd like to think that we 
have all been kind of burned by this experience of excessive partisanship uh, and, and perhaps can start thinking about you know, building coalitions. But I, one thing that concerns me is I think a lot of the Democrats um, believe that this win in the midterm was an affirmation of their ideology. And I think they're still not understanding how many of them were carried over the finish line uh, by the defection of uh, particularly suburban Republican women, and that this is not, you know, an affirmation of, you know, some, some kind of new socialism or a hard move to the left. And, and if they believe that, then I think we're going to be headed into trouble again. Well, it's been a particularly interesting week for the president from attacks on uh, Navy SEALs who uh, conducted the bin Laden raid to dismissing the CIA's assessment on the assassination of the Washington Post reporter, and then uh, the word that came out last night that he wanted the Justice Department to investigate Hillary Clinton, James Comey, possibly New York Times reporters. Will any of that make a difference? Uh, I don't think it'll make a difference to his base, and and, I, and it's gotten even worse. I mean, just a few hours before we went on air here, um, the president now is, is openly you know, taking shots at the Chief Justice of the United States, um, you know, which is would have been unthinkable even five years ago. I mean, I remember when President Obama kind of mildly criticized the Supreme Court about Obamacare, and I was one of the people who was incensed. You know, I was one of the conservatives who said, how dare he? Um, you know, the president and the judiciary and the, the gulf between them and independent powers. And we now have the president, you know, firing back directly at the Supreme Court the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, I don't think that's going to change anything for the president's base, because we really have normalized things that we would have found shocking. I mean, we can't keep up with the number of appalling and shocking things that happen every single day. Any, all the things you just listed would have been a massive scandal. Mm. Any one of them would have been a massive scandal in a previous administration. We are now getting fire hosed so hard that we've just given up and we've become numb to it. Um, I think where it will make the difference is, again, in that kind of uh, 20, 15 or 20 percent of the voters that are now willing to move away. I don't even want to say from the Republican Party, um, from conservatism, but from the president, at least, and from his hardcore supporters to put some kind of a check on him. But again, going back to what you said a moment ago. You know, that's going to depend on whether or not the Democrats can demonstrate that they're a responsible governing party. So, uh, Tom, where do we go from here? How do we come out of this? Uh, impeachment seems, uh, I think, a lost cause for the Democrats because you won't get the votes in the Senate. Are they simply relying on uh, the hope that the Mueller report is so overwhelmingly clear that crimes were committed that uh, they don't have to worry about senators going along? I think that's a dangerous strategy because I think the Mueller report will be, and this is my, again, my personal view, but it's also my view as an expert on Russian affairs. Um, I don't think the Mueller report is going to be the bombshell in terms of, you know, espionage and kind of the way, you know, like a bad movie plays out, right? Where at the last minute, you know, the spies are on earth and all that stuff. Um, I think that the Mueller report will be a bombshell if you understand forensic accounting and you understand uh, money and how the mob, the Russian mob, the Russian government, and Russian intelligence, which are really all the same group, um, have been involved in the president's finances for 20-odd years. 
Uh, so uh, I, I'm not sure that that's going to move the needle in the way that people are expecting to. I, I really don't know what the Democrats. Uh, I mean, I, I, I watching the Democrats from afar because I'm you know I've left my tribe, but I I didn't rejoin any others. Um, it seems that some of them understand that you know they're they're simply not going to get two thirds of the barring something again barring something astonishing in the Mueller report. They're not going to get two thirds of the Senate. Uh, but that's at least some of them want to go ahead with impeachment as kind of political theater, kind of for, to, you know, the way the Republicans did about Bill Clinton, where they felt like just airing this out was going to be um, an important constitutional act in itself. Now, that backfired on the Republicans. Uh, I don't know how it would play out in this case, and I'm not, I'm not sure how wise Carson's impeachment is really, you know, the political dynamite buried in the Constitution. Um, but I, but I, I think you know I, I'm t- I've p- finished predicting things because <laughs> no one could have foreseen what we'd be by 2018. That's Tom Nichols here on the Best of Downtown, and I look. I, I said it. I, I'm, I'm not sure I would strongly disagree with that. But again, not not totality of work, but the first Boston album was a heck of an album. I'm I'm not a huge Zeppelin. Yeah, and that and yes, if you limit it to that first album, I I can see an argument at least being made there. Um, you get past that first album, and, yeah, it goes yeah, downhill fast. Come on now. Yeah, <laughs> then we're singing Amanda, and well, enough said there. But uh, great to have Tom Nichols on with us. Thanks as well to the very talented Patrick Fabian. His new film uh, is out and available on demand starting on uh, Friday, November thirtieth, and that is entitled Driver X, and of course, uh, gearing up. Uh, for a new season uh, down the road, about 10, 11 months of Better Call Saul and his role as Howard Hampton. And thanks to you for joining us for episode 31 of Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine.